Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. We are going to be wrapping up our study in the book of Galatians. We are going to be in Galatians chapter 6, and we are going to be talking about uh, who are you growing. We're launching off of last week's lesson, which was what are you planting? And the idea of what are you planting uh, was this idea of are we either sowing seed to the work of the flesh or are we sowing seed to the work of the Spirit? There really is no neutral ground in the Christian life. We're always growing something. We're going to reap the fruit of what we grow, and that's really the uh, core at the message of this Uh, chapter 6 of who are you growing because the idea that we take the fruit of the Spirit and what God is doing in our lives and we use that for the mutual benefit of other people which we are called to do good and not only are we called to do good to all people we are specifically called to do good as Paul will lay out here in chapter 6 to those within the household of faith or uh, another way to put that would be other believers so it really isn't unusual for Paul to end a letter to the church with a practical living And in this final chapter, the apostle feels compelled by the Spirit of God to address how believers can do what is good and what is right to all people, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Remember that there's always a reason that these letters are being written. And if you recall, the purpose of this letter was to fight false teaching that was occurring within the Galatian church. And what is at stake when uh, these kind of rifts happen within the church is um, the life and ministry of the church itself, the existence of this local body is at stake. So you can understand that the Apostle Paul is speaking um, with a great amount of passion because he believes wholeheartedly in what God has called this church to do, and he doesn't want anything to interfere, Um, especially this idea of false teaching and those who would come in to try to undermine the household of faith. So Paul then brings them together in this mutual benefit of sharing one another's burdens, doing good to one another, and knowing that if we continue in that, that what we're sowing, we will reap if we faint not. So when we get into the first five verses here in Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 5, that it is our responsibility to keep each other accountable and to help one another follow Jesus Christ. Paul, at the very outset, um, presents what we'll call a hypothetical situation in verse 1. It is a believer, hypothetically, and of course this happens in real life, that is overtaken by sin or overtaken, as the scripture says, in a particular fault. That word is transgression. At its core, it means to slip or to fall. It's this idea of if you were walking along the sidewalk and someone tripped, what is your response? What is my response going to be uh, when we see this event happen? It could also be defined as something like a false step or or a blunder or some some failure to achieve what we are responsible to achieve. And, and scholars propose that it, it could have been anything from a, le- a relapse back into the Jewish system of religion, which again is what is at the core of this particular um, letter, uh, this idea of falling back into Judaism, or really any sin that another believer could be overtaken by. So when we, when we view this, when we see this happen in another person's life, the challenge is then issued to you and I who walk by the Spirit and are mature in the faith that we recognize that a fellow believer has fallen into or is involved in sin, and now we cannot stand by and not do anything. It is now our responsibility. It is our task to restore that believer. You might say, well, whose responsibility is to restore another believer who's fallen into sin? It is the believer who has observed it. It becomes our responsibility to engage, not to leave this person on their own, helpless, but for us to come along um, alongside one another. This term um, could be used in relation, so this term restore is the idea behind it of setting a broken bone or even mending a fishing net. And the responsibility comes with, uh, with two caveats. If I can put it this way, is that first the restoring has to be done with gentleness. 
We're not to sit in the seat of judgment. That is the responsibility of God. But we have the responsibility of gentleness to oppose this harshness and judgment that is being portrayed, importantly, by the Judaizers who've come into the church to try to get them to do it their way. He's saying, no, 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 Christian, take a different approach. Approach it with gentleness, not harshness, not judgment. And secondly, that this should be done with humility or with humbleness of spirit, of, of mind, knowing that those who are trying to help could themselves also be tempted and fall into sin and may be in need of the same exact help themselves. Now, this causes a little bit of confusion because when you, when you read, and you've probably heard it spoken many times in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, People will utilize the text of judge not that ye be not judged as a proof text for why a person should never be judgmental in trying to help others deal with their sin. But what's missing from this particular discussion is that in verse 5 in the same chapter, we are instructed to take care of those things that are in our lives, like removing the log or removing the the, the, the beam from our own eye. It's, it's, it's a... It's a it's a kind of a, a use of speech that Jesus uses to get the point across that we see a speck in one person's eye, but we've got a beam sticking out of ours. Of course, it is not our place to walk in and help in that moment. There's something we have to do first, and that is that we have to remove this beam from our own eye. Then we can enter into the life of someone else and help them as well. So it's accountability at best. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul teaches the Thessalonian church that to do the things that are necessary to admonish, warn, encourage, comfort, help, support, and be patient with each other. These are all things that we are responsible for. And what's at stake? Keep this in mind throughout this entire lesson. What is at stake is the health and the effectiveness of the local church. We are responsible to enter into each other's lives and hold each other um, accountable. So accountability is really at its core is a confrontation of sin in the church. And it's never to be condescending. It's never to be judgmental. It should even not be ostracizing. The goal is always reconciliation with humility. That is always the step that, that a mature, wise Christian takes is that they, they come with brokenheartedness to the person who has sin in their life, knowing that that sin is only going to bring about destruction. And they enter in to try to help that person work through that. So that, that way they can experience the blessings of God. We don't, we don't want to water anything down, but we don't want to rebuke in pride either. Because we know that we could easily fall into the same sin. Paul says, but for the grace of God go I. It is God's grace that separates us from the worst sinner imaginable. It is any one of us are capable of any of these things. It is only God by God's grace that we are not in that same situation. So when we walk in the Spirit, it is then when we are able to help each other get back on track. Another thing that we're able to do as we walk in the Spirit is to help each other bear heavy, crushing burdens. God gives us the church as a gift because there are many things that we simply cannot do on our own. We need one another who come alongside in our time of need and show the love of Christ. And this love of Christ is commanded to us to practice towards one another. It says, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We always have to compare ourselves only to Christ and carry out his will for our lives. When we have others to help and to help us, we tend to avoid thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. We see ourselves as needful, needful of the grace of God, needful of the salvation through Jesus Christ, and needful of one another. So the word bear or carry in verse 2 speaks of bearing what is burdensome and is used as a present imperative, which is an ongoing command. It doesn't mean that, okay, bear this one time and then you're done. It is a continuing command to keep on bearing. 
Continue on to bear one another's burdens. The idea behind a burden or a load that is too heavy for one to carry alone. And when a believer bears another's burdens in this manner, in that moment we are fulfilling the law of Christ because we are representing Christ in some way, shape, or form who has borne our burden, a burden that we could never we could never bear on our own, and that is our debt of sin. Jesus Christ comes alongside and he cares for those things, and he puts us in right relationship, and he continues to put us in right relationship with God. So if one is to live out verse 2, there's some things that have to be laid aside, and those things are conceit and an attitude of just being intolerant towards other people. So in verse 3, for if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, the word of God says that we deceive ourselves. Pride and arrogance are only things that will deter us from serving others. It will also keep the body of Christ in, in a sick form. Where, where pride and arrogance lives, the body of Christ cannot continue on in a healthy way. And then verse 4 teaches that if believers are to effectively help others through difficult times, that we have to refrain from comparing ourselves with the one struggling. We always need to keep in mind and test our lives and work against the measure of Christ and his word, not am I better than the other guy? Am I better than the other person? Am I better than the other lady? No, am I measuring up to the standard by which Jesus Christ and his word expect of me? In other words, when looking at others, the intent should be compassion, not comparison. So at first glance, verse 5, I'll read it. It says, for every man shall bear his own burden. Well, that seems a little bit confusing because in verse 2, it says that we should bear one another's burdens. So how can we bear one another's burdens, yet be expected to bear our own burdens? I think this is helpful that each believer needs to do his or her part within the body of Christ. We cannot stand by idle. And verse 2 really is speaking about hardships that other believers experience and the mutual support that should be reflected within the church. But as we all know in verse 5, there are individual loads or burdens that believers have to carry for him or herself. And the word for load referred to a pack that was carried by a marching soldier. It may be heavy and wearisome, but it is the soldier's responsibility to carry it nonetheless. The burden that you and I must always carry on our own is the burden that Jesus calls us to, and that is to pick up our cross and to follow him. It is only you and I who can answer for ourselves when we stand before God. It is you and I who will give account for our lives and what we've done with our lives, and no one can bear that burden for us. We can come alongside one another in this life. When we, when, we, when we confront and, and come alongside with difficulty, but there are certain things that we must answer to God for on our own. So what do we do here? Well, we need to humbly seek to restore each other when caught up in sin and help each other with the burdens of life. That is when the church is at its most functional. It is when the church is at its most vibrant. It is when the church is most healthy, when one another is coming in a spirit of love and caring for each other without judgment, without condescension, knowing that God's grace will be the oil that allows the church to continue and move and, and motor forward without creating so much friction that the whole thing just burns up. So believers should seek to restore other believers who are caught up in sin. We should also seek to bear one another's burdens. And those could be things like the loss of a loved one. It could be catastrophic loss or life situations that happen. But there are some responsibilities that each of us should take care of for ourselves, and those are things like working to provide for ourselves and our family, both physically and spiritually. Serving the Lord through the ministries of the church are responsibilities that we must care for on our own, doing things that will help us grow in our relationships, things like the spiritual disciplines. Those are burdens that we carry on our own, that our cross that we must carry and follow Jesus and how we will one day give account to God for what we do with it. 
So this first half is, again, confronting the idea of how we relate with one another um, as far as bearing each other's burdens. But how do we continue on? What, 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 is, what should we expect if we continue to move forward? And believers need to keep doing what is good and what is right to everyone, especially to the household of faith. So we're going to come back here in just a moment in Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 10 and see what is the great reward when we persevere in this work that we are called to do. Welcome back. We're going to finish the second half of this lesson, and we're looking at um, how believers need to keep doing what is good and right to everyone. We often find it easy to do good things to those that we like, but sometimes uh, it's difficult to uh, do good to everyone. And the scripture says in verse 10, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto those who are of the household of faith. So as we go back just a little bit into verse 6, Paul moved on to a very specific means of doing good. He says, the task of meeting the needs of Christian teachers, and the reason that Paul may be addressing this in verse 6 is because, and it just makes practical um, sense, is that Judaizers had influenced these new believers to slack off in the support of their Christian teaching and their church. So the system of giving was, again, the way that we do things now was completely foreign concept to the ways that they did that the Jews were doing things previously. So the Jews would have paid taxes for the support of the priests and the Gentiles would have paid fees to support their religious leaders. So now there were ministers and servants that had dedicated themselves to serving Christ and teaching others the gospel. So the way that God provides for that need, and in this case is that the Galatian believers were encouraged to view these servants as partners and to provide for them and to help meet their needs. Because one of the practical ways of undermining the effectiveness of the church was for the Judaizers to convince these new Christians to stop supporting those who were teaching them the scriptures and to support and to go back to the old way of doing things. It would essentially eliminate the effectiveness of the church. So as an elaboration of these principles, Paul provides us in verse 7 and 8, he gives us some, some analogies. He begins with the reality that God is not mocked. What does he mean by that? This idea of mocked means to turn the nose up at. So in relation to their teachers, the Galatians were not to think of it, to think that it didn't matter where their loyalty and support was given. The context was sowing in relation to one's finances. And again, we use these principles of sowing and reaping in verse 8 in a lot of different contexts, but the uh, what, what Paul's um, uh, um, core message here is specifically where our finances are shows where we're going to gain and where we're going to reap the most. So what am I investing in is what I'm going to, again, expect to reap from. And here, the context is sowing in relation to one's finances. It is true that what goes around does come around, but God will ultimately give to each person what he or she deserves. So he uses this agricultural phrasing of reaping and sowing, and whether it is good or bad. And it makes sense because he just finishes in verse 5 talking about, again, the fruit of the Spirit and sowing to the works of the flesh. So this is why sowing and the sowing and reaping principle is why it is so important to do good to all people and especially to God's people. You see, it is God who is worthy of all glory. All these things are in his control. So in a sense, doing good to others is an act of worship to God. And when an individual sows financially and otherwise to please their fleshly desires, the harvest will always be one of corruption. And this idea of corruption refers to rottenness or decay, which is the natural um, process of the world. And as believers, we are to enter into the spiritual aspects of what God is calling us to do. So the one who sows to the Spirit will reap a good harvest. And what's so powerful is that that good harvest is something that lasts 
forever. In verse 8, for he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And in verse 9, Paul then instructs the Galatians, don't grow weary or lose heart as they sought to do the right thing. After all, in due season, when harvest time comes, they will reap the blessed benefits of doing what is good and what is right. And this would only happen, however, if they refuse to give up. And you got to imagine that in a lot of cases, they're probably experiencing a lot of personal slight, a lot of personal slander, a lot of backbiting and, and, and uh, just talking behind, behind them. But Paul says, don't confront that. Don't, don't sow to that corruption. That's only going to bring about rottenness and decay. Rather, continue to persevere in what you know to be good. Continue to do good to all of those, and especially those of the household of faith. What are you going to reap? That this, in, this can only happen if they refuse to give up. They were to remember that they were sowing in stages and that they weren't yet ready to reap the harvest, but that harvest would come, that they should still strive to do good to everyone. And the good spoken of here isn't that which is morally good, which is obviously the right thing to do, but rather that which serves as a product of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. We're, we're called to do moral good all the time. Of course, we're not supposed to hurt and harm people, but we're supposed to go even further than that with the works of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, which are things like love, joy, peace, long-suffering. All those things should be evident. And when we invest in those things, we will reap an eternal harvest. So we need to watch for an opportunity to, opportunities to do good. And while this doing good should extend to all people, it is very clear in verse 10 that it is the responsibility of the, of the church to do good to those who are also of the household of faith. And those in the faith comprise our spiritual family. Think of it this way, that you and I have a family that we are given, uh, an earthly family. But when we receive Christ, we, that, that earthly family becomes an eternal family. That the church is the only eternal family that we know. And, and I'm hopeful that your children and, and your grandchildren and your aunts and your uncles and all those people will be part of that eternal family. But the reality is, is that only those who know Christ will be part of that spiritual family that will exist for all time. It is important for believers to take the opportunity to do good to one another, and hopefully by doing so, we will add to the household of faith that the faith that we have will be compelling, that others will want to receive Christ for themselves. So make it our daily practice. Let's make it our daily practice to do good to everyone, especially to other believers. What, would, what should that look like? Well, it can be things, as was mentioned in verse 6, like sharing financial support by offering good things that are um, outlined in verse 6 with others. What does it mean when we reap that we'll sow? Well, in general, the principle is if we spend our time and our money and our energy on things that please our sinful nature, that all we're going to do is reap a harvest of emptiness and consequences. But if we spend our time, our money, and our energy on what pleases God, we will reap joy in the blessings, not just now, but for eternity. This doesn't mean that we aren't going to experience any trouble or difficulty here on earth, but we know that if we persevere, if we continue on, if we do not faint, that there is a great harvest that we will reap. So I hope this lesson has been helpful. I hope it's been encouraging, very practical instruction of our responsibility to one another within the church and to all people to let us do good. And if we will continue on and persevere and that we will not faint, that there is a bountiful harvest of blessing that is waiting for us. So again, thank you so much for studying here in the Calvary Couples podcast, and I look forward to studying with you next time as we begin to walk through some of the Psalms together. So thank you again. If you have any questions or anything um, any anything that you just want to pass along, please do. You can reach me at jcehulik at calvaryashland.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And again, thank you for joining us, and I look forward to being with you 
next time. Thank you.